listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. A reading from the book of Galatians, chapter 5, verses 7 to 12. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettled you would emasculate themselves. This is the word of the Lord. It was 55 degrees in the house this morning when I got up. I know, right? You think it's cold in here right now, but the furnace wasn't running for some reason. I don't know. So I called a maintenance guy to come take a look at it. And then I had to be like, hey, good luck, man. I have things I have to do at church and took off and left him um, alone in the house with my wife and daughter um, just so I could be here to preach. Now, I, I, I was, when I first realized it wasn't working, I had the thought that I always do as a guy who hates maintenance. What did I forget to do? Like, there's got to be something I didn't clean out or something I didn't replace or something I didn't cycle or something whatever, um, and that's what's causing this problem. Because it's, it's true, I hate maintenance. You can ask my wife, and she'll back me up. I am thrilled by brand new things, and I love taking a really old thing and making it work again. But, like, the daily activities of keeping a brand new thing from becoming an old busted thing, I hate it. I just, I don't know, I've never liked it. I'm always late on the oil changes for our cars. I routinely forget to take out the trash. Uh, I never remember to clean out the gutters. Um, I never remember to turn off the water to the outdoor spigots, so all of ours have icicles growing out of them. Um, The low tire pressure light on my car has been on for like three months, Um, and I've been driving with wavy disc brakes for, or rotors for like two years, because as long as you press hard, it still stops. And I hate brushing my teeth. Just maintenance things are the worst. No, I still do it. I'm just saying I hate doing it, <laughs> right? That one I at least do. I hate this, this maintenance stuff, and it drives Jenna crazy. So when the guy showed up this morning, he's like, oh, it just looks like this piece went out in this part, and so it blew a fuse, and we'll get it working. It'll be no problem. I was like, oh, yes, it wasn't my fault. I didn't forget to keep that thing running. Now, I say that because I sometimes wonder if the Apostle Paul wasn't maybe a little bit like that, sort of hating maintenance, because when we read his life story, we always see him going somewhere new, starting a new church, preaching the gospel in a new place that has never been preached before, and when he hears about a church that was doing well and then starts to go off the rails, when he writes back to them with sort of a maintenance check-in, you can just hear the frustration flying off the page, right? Like, I set it up. It was working. Why did it go wrong? That's what's happening here in Galatia, and especially in the passage that we're looking at this week. I mean, this is why Paul wrote this letter to the Galatian believers. Even though they've started out well, they haven't been maintaining faithfulness to the good news. And it's all because some other traveling teachers, some sand in the gears have come in, they've showed up, they've begun teaching that for you know, non-Jewish believers in Jesus to truly follow Jesus, to really become part of God's family, they have to become, Jew- they have to become Jews, they have to become Jewish. 
And coming to this passage, we see Paul starting to say, look, you know what's really going on here is that these guys are actually afraid of how deeply the gospel cuts when it's been thought through and thoroughly applied to all areas of life. These rival teachers, afraid of that, are softening the gospel in order to soften its effect on their lives. They're trying to cut into the gospel in order to keep the gospel from cutting in to them, which makes me wonder, do we do that? It's a temptation that never goes away. Every generation has to face this challenge, the temptation that always exists to soften the gospel, to sand off the hard edges, to make it more palatable to contemporary tastes. So you really could think of this letter as a maintenance check as somebody checking in and saying, you know what, here's a few things you've taken your eye off of these parts. Uh, it's broken down a little bit. We need, to, we need to tune this up. But it's a maintenance check on the gospel itself. Paul is resharpening the knife of the good news, showing again how deeply it cuts into their lives, into their practices, into their beliefs. And in sharpening the gospel for the Galatians, he sharpens it for us too. So, we're going to jump into these six verses, Galatians 5, verses 7 through 12. It's on page 22 if you have a scripture journal, or 1157 if you're using one of those black Bibles underneath the seat in front of you. We're going to jump into these, these six verses. It's a, it's a tight paragraph of mixed metaphors, puns, repetitious vocabulary, and it kind of ends on a sick joke that sort of makes you go, am I really supposed to say thanks be to God? <laughs> this is the word of the Lord after that. But it is because, as we make our way through this, I'm going to drive us towards this one main point that Paul is driving towards, that the gospel cuts deeper than any knife can. The gospel cuts deeper when it's thought through and applied to all of life. The gospel cuts deeper than any knife. Everything he says reinforces and points out, or points to and comes from this one main idea. The gospel cuts deeper than any knife. So let's jump in. Verse 7, Galatians 5, verse 7. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Now, to get this, keep in mind the context. Paul has just in the verses before this finally come to the point of bottom lining this whole letter uh, to the men in the, the Galatian Gentile men who have begun to follow Jesus. He's saying, don't get circumcised. Gentile believers in Jesus, don't put yourself back under the Torah. Don't put yourself under the Old Testament law. This whole letter up to this point has been implicitly arguing that until in these verses just before this one, Paul makes it clear. Don't submit to the knife. If you're doing that, you're saying that Messiah hasn't really come. Or if he's come, he hasn't done anything. You're saying you haven't become part of the Messiah's family by grace and through your faith in his faithfulness. But you have. That's what I taught you. He says, you all came to Jesus that way. You were running well. So who hindered you from obeying the truth? Now, I think that's a rhetorical question. I don't think Paul is asking, by the way, would you send me a name? I think he knows full well who. This is tight-knit and small community. He knows who's gotten in the way, but he's asking it in order to bring it front of mind because in the very next verse, he's going to say, hey, this persuasion, these people who persuaded you, that didn't come from God. That didn't come from the God who called you by his grace. That's what he started the letter with way back in chapter 1. 
But before we go on to, to verse 8, let, a couple things I want to point out in verse 7. You were running well. Who hindered you? Now, that word hindered is a pun on this whole situation that doesn't come through in this English translation, the ESV, that we're reading from. Who hindered you is literally the words, who cut in on you? Who cut in on you? You were running the race well. Who cut in on you? You see, he's talking about circumcision. You got to get the, I don't have to point it out, right? Who got in your way? So the idea here is who cut, who cut in in front of you, who cut in line in front of you, who therefore slowed you down and hindered your progress? Uh, who got in your way and slowed you down? But there's more wordplay happening in verse 7 when he asks, who hindered you from obeying the truth? The word obeying, and in verse 8, the word persuasion, and in verse 10, the words have confidence. Those three words all come from the same root. I drew a box around each of them and connected them with pretty little lines in my scripture journal because they're all coming from the same idea of being persuaded of something and therefore living in light of that thing. Living in light of that truth. When you're convinced something is true, you change your life in order to live in light of it being true. I mean, an easy example is gravity, right? You may not be able to prove it scientifically or mathematically, but you know to stay off the edge of cliffs. Because even if you can't explain what's happening to you, you can still experience it. A better example might be love. Uh, when you're convinced that someone loves you, a parent or a child or a friend or a sibling or significant other. You align your life around that love. You don't act as if it's not true or doesn't happen. You reciprocate it and you align and adjust your behavior in light of that love. You've thought, you're thinking through the reality of that, that power of love in your life and changing things in light of it. So Paul's writing here, if you are convinced by the truth of the good news that he's preaching, then you'll do the hard work of thinking it through, thinking it out into every area of life, applying that truth to the way you approach every aspect of life, how you eat and how you play, how you talk, how you think, how you work, how you rest, how you own things. You can think it through. So you were running well. You were thinking this out, and then someone got in your way and persuaded you to no longer be persuaded by the truth. And I can guarantee, Paul says in verse 8, that persuasion, this persuading did not come from God. And it's not going to end well. He drops in a well-known little proverb in verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. If you're, not a, if you're not a baker, by the way, leaven is just the agent that you add to a dough in order to make it rise, whether it's baking soda or baking powder or whipped egg whites or dry yeast or wet yeast or steam or cream, or I looked up a list on KitchenAid.com in order to sound like I knew what I was talking about. It's something you add in order to, you know, work the dough to, to make it rise, to give it, to give it more mass, I guess. And basically what he's saying here in verse 9 is it doesn't take much influence. You don't add much leaven to a dough in order to make it rise. It doesn't take much influence to affect the whole. If, on this occasion, they're willing to listen to voices other than God's, then who else are they willing to listen to? And on what other occasions? Or once you start to go astray, how far are you willing to go? A little leaven leavens the whole lump. So watch out, be careful. But of course, in this case, verse 10, Paul is convinced they're going to come around to the correct conclusion. He says, I have confidence. That's that persuasion word again. I am convinced, I'm persuaded in the Lord that you'll take no other view. 
that you'll come to agree with me. Probably even through his own writing, they're going, he believes God's going to use what he wrote to convince them uh, to come down on the right side of this issue. Not, though, I, I want to point out, you know, he says, uh, take no other view. He is not saying that these two perspectives are equally valid, competing viewpoints about which good Christians can disagree. Not at all. This isn't a debate about, you know, two sort of, just different sort of ways to kind of approach Christian living. This is a debate about the gospel itself, about whether or not God recognizes an individual as a member of the covenant family by their loyalty to Torah or because their eyes have been opened to the faithfulness of Messiah on their behalf and have responded with their own faith. It's one or the other. It is not a combination of the two. Because one way, he told us at the very beginning, uh, seeing Torah loyalty as the mark of being a member of the covenant family of God is the way of the present evil age. But those who have been called by grace in the faithfulness of the Messiah are citizens of the age to come. Messiah has come and everything is different now. There's a new pattern to copy, a new way of being a member of God's family. This is not some intramural, internal debate. If it were, I don't think Paul would have gone on in verse 10 to say that the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Because it's got the idea there of this guy is going to be called to trial, and he's going to have to answer for what he's been teaching. Now, maybe he's going to answer to the congregation there who take, the, you know, who take Paul's words into account and do what he said in chapter 4, metaphorically, expel the person or make them anathema, like he said in chapter 1. Or maybe it means something a little darker than just being cast out from fellowship, but that this person has actually severed themselves from grace, severed themselves from Messiah and fallen away from grace. Or most likely it means whatever happens there and then at that time period, eventually this guy will have to answer to God for splitting the church in Galatia right down the middle, right down ethnic lines, for coming in and driving a wedge between the the Jewish believers, the Gentile believers, and between God, relegating them to separate tables and setting up hierarchical membership within the family of God that these people are more part of the family than these people, because these ones behave better. Whoever this guy is, the stuff he's teaching is a denial of the truth. It goes against the good news call of God himself, and it functions like a leavening agent, like a little bit of yeast working its way through the whole church, dividing it into fractions and factions. For all that, this guy will bear responsibility before God are harsh words, and it gets harsher. In verse 11, because uh, Paul Taylor takes a bit of a turn here in verse 11, he starts to address a charge that had been leveled against his own preaching. Apparently, the Galatian followers of Jesus had been told that Paul was still preaching circumcision, at least in other places or at, at other times. Apparently suggesting that, yeah, of course, Paul normally taught that circumcision is just the next step of obedience for a non-Jewish believer in Jesus. You follow the Jewish Messiah, and then you become Jewish. It's very clear there. Uh, And for some reason, we don't know why, I guess he left it out when he was telling you guys, that's why we're here. 
And that's what these rival teachers are saying. And you can hear Paul scornfully dismissing the accusation simply by referring to his own history. If I still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In other words, if I'm still telling people, as you accuse, if I'm telling people of, that, that they need to be obedient to Torah as a marker of being a family, part of the, you know, a member of the family of God, then why would the Jewish leaders responsible for maintaining obedience to Torah, why would they be persecuting me and agitating crowds to do violence? He says, there wouldn't be any reason to persecute me because in that case, the offense of the cross would have been removed. Later in another letter, Paul will write in this letter to the Corinthians that the idea of a crucified Messiah is a stumbling block to the Jewish people, something a loyal, faithful Jew would have to uh, think through and overcome and come to terms with in order to come to faith in Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. Here he states it even more strongly that the cross is offensive to Jews loyal to Torah. You may wonder why. Well, it's kind of been the point of the whole letter. Loyal Jewish believers in Jesus simply couldn't fathom that there was any other way to be loyal to God other than to be loyal to Torah. But the Torah, that entire Old Testament law, was, in Paul's understanding, was a temporary measure designed to preserve the people of God intact together until the promise made to Abraham could be fulfilled through them in the Messiah, the anointed one who was to come from the Jewish people. But if that Messiah came, here's Paul's logic on it, if that Messiah came and then was killed by God's own design then that means the problem Messiah came to fix was bigger than anything the law could fix. If all he had to do was come and live a perfectly Torah-obedient life, well, then law could fix the problem. But if he had to die, then the problem's deeper. It isn't just a problem that law can fix. It requires death. But if then, Paul's logic continues, if that Messiah then rose again from the dead, conquering death, well, he hasn't just conquered sin for the Jewish people, he's conquered the, you know, the universal human condition. That means he's not just here for the Jewish people. To be resurrected from the dead means he is Lord over all people and all of creation and is inviting all to come to life, Jew or Gentile. So if all peoples, if all creation are invited to come to the Messiah who died and rose again, then, then coming to Him, following Him, must be on some other basis than becoming Jewish, than through being loyally obedient to Torah. Following Him must be something more like, work yourself back up the chain, more like Abraham, who responded to God in faith. It's a matter of faith. So if you come to the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, by faith, well, then how are you supposed to order your life? What is your life supposed to look like? What is it supposed to be patterned after? Should it be patterned off of Torah? And the answer and the offense is no, not anymore. Now your life is patterned off of the life and the death of Messiah himself. In other words, our lives take on the shape of the cross not the law. That's what Paul believes. That's what's at the root and the heart of the good news he's preaching, the gospel. And this is 
incredibly offensive to faithful Jewish people. It's what drove them to violence and beating and stoning and whipping Paul everywhere he preached this message that the law had been fulfilled and needed to be set aside because it meant that Jews who who thought of themselves as part of a special, blessed people of God find out that there are also others who are part of the family. And those others didn't have to work as hard to become part of the family. They just have to respond in faith. Just respond in faith to the faithful Messiah. And that's, that's not fair. Now they're part of the blessing. Now they get the inheritance that was promised to us, the one that we have been waiting for for generations and generations. After thousands of years of them being on the outside, unclean and sinners, and now they don't have to do anything to be part of the family of God. That doesn't make sense. And on top of that, in Galatia at the time, I mean, Gentiles claiming the privileges that Jews enjoyed in the Roman world, privileges that other citizens resented, and these Gentiles just get to say, hey, we're basically like Jews now because we have faith. Without doing anything, without any change of life, no, no observance of food laws, no circumcision, no none of that, they just get to suddenly be part of us now and shelter under our special privileges. They haven't been part of our history. They haven't been part of our culture. They haven't been part of our suffering. They haven't been part of anything we've dealt with for thousands of years, and now they're just in. How could the God who called us and gave us the law possibly be okay with that? You can see why they got a little riled up when Paul would show up and say, hey, actually, the cross changed everything. And it makes Paul's defense make a little bit more sense. Like, guys, he says, brothers, you know, my, my brothers and sisters, my family, my family I love. If, think about it. If I were still preaching that you had to obey Torah, do you think I would have gotten beaten so many times? Of course not. But he is getting beaten. Therefore, he's not preaching circumcision, QED. He's not preaching Torah loyalty. He's preaching against it. These other teachers aren't. They're saying Torah loyalty is absolutely essential. It's vital to being a Jesus follower. Can't be a true follower of Jesus. Can't really be part of the family of God without it. And Paul says, man, I wish those guys working you up into such a frenzy about this, teaching you that you have to take the knife to yourself, I wish they'd just go ahead and go all the way and cut the whole thing off. I'm sorry, I know that comes across a little crude, but it's what Paul is saying. Now, he's saying it with sarcasm and some irony, playing off of the the pun that began in verse 7, kind of continue. This whole letter has been about whether or not to take the cut. And now we've got people who are cutting in, and Paul says, I wish they would just cut themselves off from fellowship in the church. See what he's saying here? And he's using some odd vocabulary, some Greek we don't run into very many other places, because there's, there's some resonance going on in, their, in the minds of the readers within the culture that they live in. In southern Galatia, there's another particular religious ritual that involved priests in the yearly, uh, the yearly worship of the mother goddess Sibylle, who would work themselves into a frenzy in this religious ritual that would end at the heights with self-castration. 
So if you'll forgive my own pun, Paul's making a sharp point here. Cutting deep. If the Galatians submit to the knife and go through with what these rival teachers are advocating, what they're really doing in subjecting themselves back under Torah is saying, Messiah didn't come, we're not free, we're slaves. We can't obey it perfectly, therefore we will end up worshiping the gods of wood and stone eventually, stretch Torah out into eternity, and you get spiritual death. That's the conclusion. We're going to end up worshiping these pagan gods anyway. We might as well throw ourselves right back into the type of paganism that we came out of in order to join the family of God. So that's what you're doing. So in a way that's kind of distant for us, I think Paul's first readers would have understood the heavy irony in what otherwise looks like a sick joke. But for us, what this communicates to us is that Paul is reiterating here, talking about the offense of the cross, that the gospel cuts deeper than any knife ever will. The gospel, when thought through and thoroughly applied, cuts deeper than any, uh, any knife. And that is a truth that applies just as evenly to us as it does to these Galatians, just in different ways. Because the temptation to blunt the sharp edge of the gospel hasn't gone away. It's very much present in our day, too, because the cross is just as offensive today as it has always been. We have to keep, as much as I don't like maintenance, we have to keep maintaining the sharp edge of the gospel knife in order to continue to cut into ourselves the things that the gospel is supposed to cut out. It doesn't matter what culture you grew up in and were inculcated into. The cross and the gospel, it, it will resonate deeply with some aspects of your culture, but also be deeply offensive. It's just as much true for our culture as any other. So, in our kind of westernized culture, when the cross tells us that we aren't good enough on our own, that you know, we aren't enough on our own, that we need someone else to rescue us, that's deeply offensive. But we face it, at least a little bit, we believe it, and then we soften it almost immediately. Say, okay, well, yes, I've been rescued, but now you know as well as I do that really good Christians are those who do thus and such, right? These specific things, and we fill in some values, some rules, some culturally accepted or culturally appropriate or approved of rules, rules that just so happen to align so perfectly with the crowd that we run with, what our culture already values. You know, if you're from a, more of an Eastern culture, uh, then we tend to emphasize the, the aspects of the gospel that tell us to be deferential. You know, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. Or the aspects of the gospel that tell us to privilege and think, think about the whole before we think about the individual. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself and became obedient. On the other hand, if you're from a more Western culture, then we tend to emphasize the parts of the gospel that tell us to be more individualistic, to fight against authorities telling you to not to do what you feel called to do. After all, Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. Or we lionize character traits like boldness and courage 
because we like table flipping Jesus, not crying in the garden Jesus. But what's really happening is that we're only giving attention to the parts of the gospel, true aspects and implications of the gospel. We're only giving attention to the ones that already resonate within our culture. We're writing off or ignoring or sharpening or, sorry, blunting the sharpness of the parts of the gospel that confront us directly. This became so clear to me once when I I was listening to a guy preaching, an an Asian follower of Jesus preaching about a friend of his, also an Asian guy, who felt called to ministry and his parents were against it. And so he asked his Asian friends, "Uh, what should I do here? And they said, well, the Bible is so clear about it. Obey your father and mother. And he asked his American friends, and his American friends said, oh, the Bible's so clear about this. Who is your father and mother? You see what's going on? We're grabbing the aspects, both true, but we're grabbing the parts of the gospel that affirm within us the things we already want to affirm and go after. This is why the American church has such a hard time with the fruit of the Spirit, where Paul's going to go next, especially in today's political and cultural climate. Love and peace and patience, kindness and goodness and gentleness, might as well say weakness. I don't want a leader like that. I don't want a leader who looks like Jesus. Sorry, no, I do. Table flipping Jesus. That's the leader I want. We short the gospel just as much as these teachers in Galatia because the cross is offensive to us too because it tells us we need to be rescued from ourselves and it also tells us we need to be rescued from our Americanism. Jesus may be in my heart, but with America in my bones... I'm not redeemed yet. There's still work to do. The gospel needs to keep cutting. Well, that's one example. I've got a few more. Our Western American culture tells us that we belong to no one but ourselves, right? Who are you accountable? Yourself. You are accountable to no one but yourself, and the only real moral obligation you have on your life is to look deep down inside, figure out who you truly, truly are, and express it. Live that out in your own unique way, and don't let anybody tell you otherwise. The cross says we don't belong to ourselves. It says you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. You were bought with a price. If you look at the cross and you see it saying to you, hey, now you're free to be you, you're misreading it. Look at the cross and see it saying, this is what I paid for you. You don't belong to you anymore. So we can't do just whatever we want with our lives, with our bodies, with our sexuality and our gender or with our money and our plans. And half of us think the other half is focusing too much on one half to the neglect of the other half when we're both neglecting half. Did you track with me? Just depends on which side of the political divide you're on. And it doesn't matter which side we're on. It's hard to hear, so we shorten it. We shorten the gospel. We blunt the sharpness of the gospel and present Jesus as, you know, the guy who's going to help you be you, is the path to finding your true self. And there's some truth to it. We're unique individuals created uniquely and gifted uniquely to live before God in our own ways. But the moment you see Jesus as the way to yourself instead of salvation from yourself, 
You've blunted the sharpness of the gospel. Jesus becomes all about affirming, not forgiving and then changing. So the gospel tells us we aren't enough on our own. We need rescue. Having been rescued, we don't belong to ourselves. But not being enough, having been rescued, now being owned by God, he has something to say, too, about what life looks like, what normal life for a Christian looks like. And regardless of what the Declaration of Independence says, for the Christian, normal life is not the life in pursuit of liberty and happiness. It's not. Not for one who has been rescued and bought with a price. If you've been bought by the sacrifice of the Messiah and His life is the template by which our lives should be fashioned, you remember His life. There was a lot of hardship in it. Why do we think our lives are supposed to be happy and satisfying? Why do we think we're doing something wrong if we're not happy? It may just be that we're, we're following Jesus, but we tend to focus so much on just one verse. You know, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly, have it to the full. And we forget that a fullness of life is life as Jesus lived, a life of Jesus-shaped love, a life of love that he characterized as being the kind of love that lays down your life for others. Greater love has no man than this, but that he lays down his life for his friend. Jesus says, you want to find abundant life? Here's what it looks like. It looks like love, and love looks like this. It looks like embracing death and suffering on behalf of others. So why do we think that God loves us, therefore He wants us to be happy, therefore whatever makes us happy is what God wants us to do? What if He didn't call us to be happy? What if He bought us with a price so we could live a life of cross-shaped love, embracing sacrifice and death on behalf of other people. That cuts deep. So we blunt it. We blunt the sharpness and say, God wouldn't want me to not be happy. I mean, that's just three. We could keep going. There's all these ways we shorten the gospel. We blunt the sharp edges of the gospel knife to prevent it from cutting so deeply into us in order to cut the sin out of us and make room for the fruit of the Spirit to grow in us. We are guilty of the same things that the false teachers in Galatia are, removing the offense of the cross. Because the true offense is how deeply it cuts into us, telling us who we really are, who we really belong to, what our lives are really supposed to look like. So as I study this passage over and over again, getting ready for this morning, I had to keep coming back to this question, like, how am I cutting the gospel short in my own life so it can't cut so deep? How am I blunting the sharp edge of the gospel knife so that it can't cut into me, because the gospel, Paul contends, thought through and applied to every area of life will cut so much deeper than any knife. And the marks of one who is cut by the gospel won't look like the Jewish markings. It'll look like the markings he carries around in his own body, Paul carried around in his own body, the marks of being beaten and stoned and whipped or the markings 
that the Spirit engenders in the life of one who has been cut by the gospel, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. The gospel cuts deeper than any knife unless we blunt it, keep it from doing its work. Father, the irony is that we, we soften the edge of the gospel in us because it feels like we are giving up so much freedom, and yet you call us in the very next verse to freedom, not to slavery, certainly not to slavery to ourselves. Father, may the knife of the gospel cut so deeply in us that we find in it the way of freedom, the way of life and peace. In Jesus' name. Amen.